Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning, LifePoint. As Lane said, my name is Jonathan Holmes, and I'm the pastor of community here. Uh, If you uh, have your Bible with you, if you'd open to uh, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, we're going to be wrapping up our summer series called The Messiah's Mission, Ministry of Making Disciples. And we're going to be reading that final passage together this morning. But I have to confess this morning that I am a terrible hype man. Uh, I, I'm just bad at it. I've, but not for the reasons that you might expect. You might, you might expect that a hype man just gets someone excited about something. I'm, I get people too excited about something. I'm, I overhype things, if you will. And so this happens all the time in my life, that, uh, it's especially when I was a younger kid. I'd be telling a friend, listen, you have to see this movie. It will change your life. And they'll see the movie and they'll say, I mean, it was good. And I'm like, what? How is this possible? And then I would have a burger, and I'd be like, you have to have this burger. And they would say, this is McDonald's. And I'd be like, but it changes your life, right? And, and I would overhype things all the time. I wonder if you have that problem too, of just setting the bar so high that it doesn't matter if it's good or not, that the expectation is completely missed. I mean, this just happened with my wife, Amber, and I've, I, I've realized this about myself, so I have a strategy now. And so I told her one evening, I said, listen, you have to watch this series. It's amazing. I mean, it's going to change your life. And I knew it right at that moment. I was like, what have I done? And of course, what does she do? She says, of course I'll watch it. Like, this is great. And I immediately go and switch gears, and I, I, I have to try to align her expectations now. I'm like, well, you know, it's really slow. The character development is really poor. The, you know, I'm like, this episodes are really long, right? I'm like, kind of go, and I'm, I'm just going and going and going because I'm trying to align her expectations so that when she does experience it, she experiences it in a way that is proper, that, it, that she can have a good experience. She doesn't question maybe my judgment or even if this experience is good or not. And that's why I see myself as a terrible hype man, because I overhype things. And so now, can you imagine in the history of Israel that as they expected the Messiah to come, that they begin to picture what his reign is going to look like. They pictured the man that would come and that would bring them prosperity. And then Jesus arrives. And before Jesus sends off his disciples, not only was his arrival maybe a missed expectation for the Jews, his disciples have misaligned expectations about what they're about to experience. We see this throughout the Gospels. But here... We, we have to ask the question is, why did so many of the Jewish religious leaders of the day miss the Messiah? Why in the world? The, the people who were the best at reading and knowing the Old Testament had no idea he was the Messiah. And it's because of missed expectations. So when the Messiah would come, he would bring a physical kingdom that would raise us up to prosperity. And even in the disciples, you can see it in some of the questions that they asked Jesus. Can I sit by your right hand and the other to the left? That they see his reign as physical. We will reign with the Messiah. And in our text this morning, 
we're going to see Jesus help align the expectations of his disciples. So would you read with me Matthew 10? And we're going to start in verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Would you pray with me as we open up God's word? Father God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would grant us discernment as we look at your word this morning. Speak to us in a way that stirs our affections and our actions May we not just sit as idle listeners, but partakers in your mission, those who are sent out by you. Apply this truth deep within our hearts and minds that it might come to bear on each of our daily lives. Help us leave this place changed as we are confronted, rebuked by your grace. Amen. So in our passage this morning, we see Jesus wanting to align his disciples' expectations with what they're about to experience, what they would face as they were being sent out on mission. As I said before, many Jews in Jesus' day expected the Messiah's advent would bring them political peace and material prosperity. So today, many who claim to follow Christ think that their walk with Jesus we'll do much of the same. It creeps into our lives like a spiritual karma, and we think, if I attend church regularly, then I will receive that promotion. If I tithe, then I shall sow the seed of prosperity. If I'm a kind person, then my life will just work out. Good things will happen. But Jesus insists that those who are being sent out would have a different experience. Their experience would entail strife and division. So when suffering comes, we should not be surprised. We should not think, well, where did I misstep? How did I get off the path of righteousness? We should be confirmed, assured that we are walking in the footsteps of our Lord. And Jesus not only warned us about the strife and suffering that each disciple would experience, he equips us to persevere in the midst of them. Jesus is confronting our misaligned expectations and aligning them with the sovereign will he has for every disciple who is sent out by him. See, Christians, we must correct our expectation 
of the Messiah's mission to make disciples by a paradox, an allegiance, and a promise. That these three truths, a paradox, an allegiance, and a promise, will help align our expectations with a disciple's experience of living sent out by Christ. So first we see the paradox of peace in verses 34 through 36. Do not think, I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? We would attribute that to the devil himself, not Jesus. Surely not the Messiah. You've not come to bring peace? But a sword, I mean, this seems, is in stark contrast with his words in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How does the description from the prophet Isaiah as the prince of peace, and here in Matthew 5, the teaching of Jesus, work with the man who said, in no way should you expect that I have come to bring peace. I have come with a sword on my hip. See, this seems like a paradox, doesn't it? How do we reconcile that the one who's called the Prince of Peace does not bring peace? We must understand how Jesus is using this to help align our expectations as his disciples. See, when I think of the word peace, I think of calm. I think of comfort. It's a literally an absence of something, right? It's an absence of strife, of disturbance, and that would result in peace. But the peace that Messiah brings is not an absence of anything. It's the presence of something. See, there is peace in heaven. There's peace in heaven, as it says in Luke 19.38. For Jesus has made payment for our sin. This peace is a greater peace. It's a greater peace than we could ever imagine because it is eternal. But it also means war against evil and darkness. See, where the kingdom of light comes in, the kingdom of darkness is pushed away. It's pushed out. Jesus is warning his disciples that the kind of peace that he brings is a peace that has side effects. See, this eternal peace that is granted to every disciple, it also has side effects. And the side effects are strife, their division, their suffering. See, rest in that we are made right with God and that we are fully justified. We're given peace with the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit living within us. And we're fully justified by His grace and mercy. But strife, and that people would divide over their reaction to the Messiah's coming, would exist. See, A.W. Tozer once said, to be right with God often meant to be in trouble with men. See, if you're right with God, that a lot of times will, be, will bring trouble or division, you might say, as an experience of a disciple. In verse 34, as we join in the Messiah's mission, it is described as the strife or the suffering that we would experience as a sword. Now see, the sword is of course not a literal sword. 
used as a weapon, but it's a metaphor for separation, for division. For when you smash something with a sword, you expect it to divide it, to separate it, to cause destruction, separation. And as people respond differently to the invitation to repent and follow Jesus, a natural division occurs. Jesus is saying that when you use a sword, you should expect division. And when you follow Jesus, you should expect division. There will be people who reject, and there will be people who accept. The kind of conflict that Jesus has in mind will present itself in the place we least expect it, or the place maybe we should at very least expect it. And it's the place of the family. The fundamental unit that was ordained by God will very well cause division by his coming. See, Jesus then quotes a portion of Micah 7, 6. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. The context of Micah 7, 6 describes awful evils in the land of Israel. And it deplores them. It's a state of extreme corruption, right? But in Micah's day, the corruption came about in God's people rebelling from him. And Jesus is using this as, as you follow me, there will be this wake of strife and division. If you live a life that's centered on the gospel and it is truly embraced. See, but let's not swing this too far though. Let's not move the pendulum of now let's go seek out division. A Christian is never given permission to be abrasive, to be rash, to be harsh, to be arrogant. That is never a truth defense. He is not encouraging you to be someone who thrives on division. We have enough of that. People seeking out ways to draw lines. Oh, you think that? Well, I think this. I guess we can't talk anymore. I'm going to unfollow you. The intention is not to divide or stand against, but is rather the natural result of a life lived for the gospel. See, in the Bible, often a result or a consequence is expressed as if they were intentions of the speaker. The divisive result of the Messiah's advent is not the intention, it is the result. So to intend division is wrong. Before there to be division as a result of you following the Lord should happen. It's a natural occurrence. But to intent, to divide, to separate, to harm is wrong. J.C. Ryle said, so long... As one man believes and another man remains unbelieving, so long as one is resolved to keep his sins and another is desirous to give them up, the result of the preaching of the gospel will mean division. He brings peace, but that peace divides the world between those who have embraced that peace and those who have rejected it and opposed it. Many years ago, I was sitting with a middle school student. He came at one of our outreaches with a friend. He had been around uh, for a little bit. I didn't know his story, but that night he professed faith in Jesus Christ. And so I was sitting with him and talking with him, and I, I said, Man, you know, so tell me about your family. 
And his immediate reaction was, they're not going to like this. It's like, oh, wow. Did not expect that. They're not going to like this. And so he came back a few times after that. And every once in a while when I would see him, I would, I would be able to have the conversation with him. How are you doing? And, and he's, you know, one time he just said, I'm not doing good. It's like, what, what's going on, bud? Like, what, what's wrong? And he said, man, my parents are all over me because I'm actually following the Lord. I, my, my dad is making fun of me because I'm reading my Bible. My, my mom was yelling at me the other night because if Jesus is so strong, why doesn't he help us? And it just broke my heart. This, this young man, the seventh grader, accepted the Lord and he was experiencing the truth of this. And just because if we live in a Christian bubble or we've been blessed with a, with a household that's, that's godly, that it exists, friends. This is not something that we write off. It's something that's a real experience for many. And this is what the Prince of Peace is talking about. Now you must understand that I've not come to bring peace. I've brought a sword There will be division. Jesus is trying to wake up his disciples. He's shaking them before he sends them out. Saying you have to know your expectations are not aligned with what your experience is going to be. And I know this. I know what you're going to experience. I know the path that's been set before you because I'm walking it. And the one who brings peace will have the side effect of strife and suffering and division. So how do we understand this paradox of peace? Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has indeed brought peace, but the kind of peace that he has brought is much greater than we've ever expected. And it doesn't mean that conflict and division will cease. Their expectations had been so solidified around the idea of the advent of the Messiah would bring physical prosperity. It would bring a new kingdom that they could finally have comfort and hope in. But his plan was so much greater than that. The Lord's plan was, as he was sent by the Father, to establish a kingdom that goes beyond generations. It's not just a physical kingdom. Although that will come, there's a spiritual kingdom of today that has come. More real than any kingdom we could ever be a part of in our lives. The peace that Jesus offers is eternal peace with God. We are made right with him by the blood of Christ. And how, do you, how you respond to that invitation will, re, will result in division in this life. These close-knit relationships as people respond differently might break. They might fracture. And as a Christian, we don't seek out that division and that fracturing. We attempt to restore it with grace, kindness, forgiveness, and mercy. But we should not be surprised when we experience it. So first, we must align our expectation to the Messiah's mission by understanding the paradox of peace. And then we see an allegiance to Jesus before everything and everyone in verses 37 through 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Here we have three times it says, is not worthy of me. And then a summary statement is given in verse 39. The, f- the critical phrase for us, though, is more than me. Jesus taught through and through that, yes, we must love and serve one another, but we must love Jesus more. See, this is an incredible claim because in Judaism, there was no greater relationship than your relationship with your family. There should not be division. There should be love. There should be grace in there. There should be strong relationships. And here Jesus is saying, Yes, love your family, but your love for me should be so much greater. It should look like that love doesn't even exist. That your love for me should be so overwhelming. It should be supreme in your life more than anything else. See, Jesus is not forbidding his followers to love their parents or their children. He's assuming they do, in fact, love them but he is teaching that their attachment to the members of their family must never usurp their attachment or their allegiance to Jesus. See, Jesus rightfully places him as first and most loved, as beloved. He is the one, the apple of our eye. And our love and allegiance to Jesus must come before anyone else and anything else. There is no relationship, no possession, no achievement, no career that should come before the Lord. If we begin to love anything before God, then we have forsaken our first love. And we must repent and turn back to Him. That is where satisfaction is. That is where a right relationship is. This love for Jesus is then illustrated in verse 37. It's illustrated... By carry, or 38, sorry, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me. It's a carrying of the cross. This is what your love should look like. Your love for me supremely should be, look like carrying a cross. And this would be a vivid picture for his disciples. They'd be like, what did you just say? We've seen these guys carry their crosses. We've seen them die on those crosses. We've seen them cripple under the weight of those crosses. This is the first mention in Matthew's gospel of crucifixion by Jesus. So this would be shocking. Now the cross has lost some of its weight, I think, in Christianity because rightfully we focus so much on it. But can you imagine as a disciple, the tool that is used for death is the tool that Jesus describes as a way of showing obedience and love to him. As Warren Wearsby once said, to carry the cross does not mean to wear a pin on our lapel or put a sticker on our automobile. It means to confess Christ and obey him in spite of shame and suffering. It means to die to self daily. If the Lord went to a cross for us, The least we can do is carry a cross for him. It's such a tremendous privilege to be a follower of Christ that there is no earthly relationship that can even compare to that relationship with him. The sufficiency of our relationship with Jesus Christ 
invites us to be ready to sacrifice anything and to sacrifice everything because there's nothing more we could possibly gain. We have everything we need and everything we've ever wanted in Jesus. And just when we begin to question this radical call from Christ, surely you don't mean that we're to love you more than life itself. Surely you don't mean your love for you should be so overwhelming that it, 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 it pales in comparison to anything else. Surely you don't mean that. Verse 39 presents the two alternatives we have. Protect your life or sacrifice your life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, that phrase, finds his life, means to protect it, to preserve it, to nurture it, but do it in a way that keeps it safe. Those who are in love with their life on earth will do everything in their power to extend it by protecting it. Their number one goal, or you could say their ultimate purpose, is to live as long as they can and be as happy as they can. That their comfort is the first thing they protect. Their time is the first thing that they try to extend. But their life, though protected from all danger, will pass away. For they will at last die. And having tried to protect their life, they will lose it. Having tried to protect everything they have, their comfort, their dreams, their careers, their success, their whatever, relationships, they will lose it. And that will bring eternal torment. There's no middle ground, church. There's no middle ground. Either you protect your life and you lose it, or you lose your life. For Christ's sake, sacrificing your life, then you will gain. If you live with the aim to protect only our own interests, then we will be losers. But if we die to self with the aim to glorify God, we'll be winners. Because the success is not determined by how much you sacrifice. It is determined by his sacrifice. What he's done. Whoever finds Christ, finds life. Let that, let that hold on to you. Whoever finds Christ, finds life. There's nothing more to gain. You have it all. Proverbs 8.35 Forever finds me, finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. More than we could ever imagine. I can think of few things that would be more countercultural than this message of pledging our allegiance to God or to Christ before everyone and everything. We're told over and over again that true life is found in oneself and we drink this lie daily, ultimately to realize that our soul still longs for something else. The farther we drink, the more we thirst. See, it tastes good on the tongue and then rots out our insides. We're quick to declare our love for ourselves to protect what we have and do whatever it takes to have a good life. But this is not the picture of the gospel. See, the picture of the gospel is a life lived, anxious to see 
the glory of the Lord. Anxious to see the kingdom of God realized today. And that does not take protection. That takes perseverance amidst suffering. So I remember a story I read about where one saint was looking at a beautiful painting of Jesus on the cross. And here was his thought as he looked at this. If Jesus has done this for me, then what is the limit for what I should do for him? Will I ever find that line? Okay, I, I shouldn't sacrifice anymore because I think we're even. I think we're good. No. It just keeps going. He sacrificed everything so we can be faithful in walking with him. You may have to sacrifice your personal ambitions. You may have to sacrifice comfort. You may have to sacrifice a little bit of pleasure. You may have to sacrifice the enticement of entertainment or even a career. But that sacrifice pales in comparisons, comparison with what he has already sacrificed on your behalf. There is no getting even. There is just an imitation. You, you might have to lay aside everything. But Jesus reminds his disciples of this truth again in Matthew 16. If anyone anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The question is, who or what has your allegiance? Is there something that you love more than the Lord? Is is there something, if you lost it, that your world would crumble? Not that there would be suffering and pain and sadness. Of course, that's natural. But that you would say, I can't believe in God anymore. If, If God took that from me, that's an idol. That's something you love before the Lord. May we give Jesus our whole selves and not hold anything back from the only one who is worthy. Then finally, we see a promise to watch over the little ones. Verses 40 through 42, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will will by no means lose his reward. See, Jesus' message moves from the depth of devotion required of his disciples to what will happen when people begin to respond to this challenge. In contrast to the oppositions that the disciples will face, there will be some who will give a great reception to them. By receiving his disciples, they were essentially receiving him. They were receiving him because they were sent out by him. They were functioning as his ambassadors. Whatever is done to his disciples, Jesus declares that it is done even unto himself. And as you treat these men who I'm sending out, you're treating me. One commentator said this, the thought is that of the outworking of one great divine person, 
in which the Father, Jesus who had been sent out by the Father, and the disciples who were being sent out by Jesus all had their part. They were so closely connected that any honor paid to the disciples had to be regarded as something that overflowed to Jesus and to the Father. That their connection was so close that the Father sent the Son. The Son sent the disciples, also sent the Spirit of God to us so that we would be sent. And as one treats us, as one treats his disciples, that's how they're treating the Lord. It's not a personal attack. It's a division. Notice that Jesus points out even the smallest act of kindness, like giving a cup of cold water to one of the little ones. That will receive a great reward. See, Jesus is not speaking of a small service rendered to a great person, but a small act of kindness delivered to a small person. See, even this type of kindness will not go unnoticed from God, who is always watching, who always knows, and who's always caring. It's important to understand that, the top, that this topic of the final section is one of discipleship, not sonship. See, we are welcomed as children of God through faith in Christ by grace of God. Period. That's it. Our justification does not depend on our sacrifice. Our justification does not depend on what we do. It is already done, finished, and it is finished upon the cross and it is secured in the empty tomb. That relationship is secure in what Christ has done on our behalf. That really is good news. We enter this path of discipleship after we are welcomed in as sons and daughters of God. And this path of discipleship will lead us to obedience of His will. And that obedience of His will, there will come division, there will come conflict, but there will come those who come before us, come with us, who respond well, even in acts of kindness, but in, in reception of the message. The fact that we are children of God does not change. But what discipleship looked like and what we're called to do does change. And so the the invitation this morning is twofold. Are you in a relationship with God? That's the first question. You can't get to discipleship without sonship. You can't follow the Lord without trusting that he has already accomplished everything you need. Do you feel that this morning? That grace and mercy. Jesus doesn't love you more when you're good. He doesn't love you more. There's nothing you can do or not do to make him love you more. His love is secure in what he has done for you. The second invitation is are you active in discipleship with God? Are you active in discipleship with God? The question is, is interesting to think about. What is God's posture towards you right now? Are his arms crossed? Is he leaning away and he's going, oh man, when are you going to get it together? Man, I just need to give you a little bit more time. Right when you're good, I'll take you because you're just still not there yet. Is he, is he turning his back to you? Saying, I'm going to cover up my ears so I don't hear this. We, we, would, we laugh at that, right? We think, 
There's no way. I don't believe that. And we give the right theological answer, right? It's not that he's distant, it's that he's beside us. By the Spirit, interceding for us. But we don't feel that. We definitely don't act that. We act like we're trying to prove ourselves. We're like, see, I am worthy of this. No, we're worthy of nothing. Jesus is worthy of everything. See, God is not distant from you. He is with you, and that being with you causes you to move. It's not an idol. It's not sitting beside you, holding your hand. You know, I think for me, when I was a kid growing up in church, I just thought walking with Jesus looked a lot like holding hands and frolicking in a field, right? I'm like, oh, that's, isn't that cute? It's pretty, right? No. Jesus says, walking with me looks like bearing this cross. And when you say, I can't, I can't take one more step, you say, I'm taking the steps for you. It's because you're trying to take the steps yourself. Lean in on me. Christians, we must correct our expectation of being sent out on the Messiah's mission to make disciples. And we do this by understanding the paradox of peace. We do this by pledging, a G, pledging allegiance to Jesus before everything and everyone. And we do this by believing in the promise to watch over the little ones. And because of my maybe lack of understanding of what it looked like to follow Jesus as a kid, I think it came from some soft teaching. I think it came from simple ignorance as a kid. That whenever I did face suffering, when I faced the cost of discipleship, I went, what? No one told me about this. You mean walking with the Lord is going to cost me something? I thought this was supposed to give me something. But I questioned his faithfulness. I questioned the Lord's goodness. And these bad assumptions, this ignorance, and maybe some soft teaching caused me to have a real conflict of faith. Man, is he real? Is this true? And as Jesus is sending you out on mission, he's taking you by the shoulders. And he's saying, man, your expectations are not aligned with mine. I need to align these. You need to understand what you're about to experience. You must know that the world is going to try to eat you alive like wolves with sheep. But don't fear, for I will be with you. When you can't take one more step, I will give you the strength you need. You're to boast in your weakness, not your strength. Boast in mine. I am watching and I am with you. Don't let your missed expectation cause you to doubt God. Church, this morning we confront our misaligned expectations of comfort, of happiness, of circumstantial happiness, of success. And we lay them before the throne and we hear the call of Christ. Everyone who follows me. Everyone must carry their cross. Would you pray with me?